Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 156, Games for Fall 2019. On today's episode, by popular demand, we will play some classic literary disco games. We'll do a bookshelf roulette, a judge a book by its cover, and whatever rock paper poem game <laughs> allows Todd to say mother and make fun of Rupi Kaur. Oh, this no. is Literary I Disco, got, the last book club you'll ever need. Oh, you did? Good. Yeah. We're Good. Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hey guys. Good to see ya. Hey, we should be honest about why we're doing the games. It's not... Because we have no time to read anything. We have no time to read, and Julia... Julia saw Jesus. I did. I had a near-death experience. <laughs> did Did you actually see Jesus? Or was it like, no. oh my God, it's just a guy in a robe. I don't think that's Jesus. Okay, first of all, I don't think Jesus is hovering over like Connecticut Fall Festivals just <laughs> waiting for know. people to go down. You don't know. Although, Jesus is they are awesome. They are fantastic. So I was stung by a bee, you guys, and it turns out I'm very allergic. And uh, this is actually a yellow jacket. I want to be clear because we can all, you know, still care and love about bees. But yellow jackets are actually wasps and they're evil, horrible motherfuckers who try to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, the wasp lobby is going to be coming after literary (laughs) disco. (laughs) Um, But I'm fine. I was just like very heavily medicated and I wasn't. Was I read? Oh, I read the new Stephen King book actually, which was a trip to read that on a lot of drugs. Um, <laughs> oh, but the otherwise, one the Sun, that one. No, the new one, the Institute. Um, the it's, Institute. Oh, yeah. right, right. I right. listened. I listened to it last week too on audiobook. It's great. Yeah, it and actually, um, I will plug. I I was reading it because I was invited to be on Connecticut's NPR station to talk about it and sketch comedy. So I was like set up for success. So if you want to hear me really, really intensely on steroids and like ranting about Key and Peel, <laughs> I <laughs> oh, do. Fine. The Colin McEnroe show, <laughs> Friday, October 25th. Um, Wait, I'm confused. They combined Stephen King's book and so uh, it, uh It was a three three part discussion every Friday. They have a roundtable, so um, it was sketch comedy, uh. Key and Peele, and then like Dennis Quaid dating that or marrying that like 26 year old, which I literally have nothing to say about. So I just right. ranted as much as possible about the two subjects I am an expert in so that we would run out of time on Dennis Quaid. And it worked. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> you know, um, as yeah. the host of a local public radio station uh, <clears throat> show, what I can tell you is sometimes you get on the radio and you realize we have nothing to talk about. Oh, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> That's 40 minutes. Maybe there's a girl on steroids we can bring on. <laughs> anyway, and I wasn't the only busy one. You guys seem completely slammed. Uh, yes. Ryder, yes. is your is the run of your show over? Yeah, yeah. The play ended um, uh, on Sunday. So it's, uh, but yeah, it was like taking over my life. I didn't realize like, you know, obviously rehearsals took over my life. And then once the play started, I was like, what do I do now? But the reality is like so many people that I knew were going right. 
and the cast really wanted to see me, you know, every night it was real. So I ended up going like almost every night to, um, to not to watch the play. I, that would drive me insane, but to, um, you know, give everybody a, a, a break a leg and, and hang out and get updates on how the audiences were doing. And, and, uh, yeah, it was classic. Of course, like our last two weekends were completely packed and sold out and, everybody waited to the last minute uh, to come. So it was like, you know, all my friends were there in the last weekend, like uh, desperately. Um, but yeah, it, w- it went great. And um, now my goal is to get another production going in another city. Oh, that'd um, be great. I'd love to, I'd love to see it. And uh, you know, LA is a tough theater town, not, not because of the lack of talent, but because people don't really go to the theater yeah. here. Um, I can't tell you how many of my friends after seeing the play, would be like, that was my first play in LA. Oh, wow. I'm like, what are you talking? And these are like, you know, interested, like educated, like culturally savvy people that do stuff like out in the world. But uh, for whatever reason, LA people, you know, we go to movies, we go to concerts, we do that kind of stuff. But a lot of people here don't go to theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's just one of those. It's a challenging theater town to, to because the talent is there, man. There's so many actors, obviously, and directors and scene designer, you know, everybody is here. Um, but it's just hard to get people to come out. So, um, I'd love to see this play, uh, up in a, in a different city. Can, uh, I, can I ask a dumb question? Yeah. So do you keep the sets that you built? Um, no, you, that you have right after you finish the play, you do what's called strike and you break everything down. And, uh, in this case, we didn't really have sets. We had these moving, um, like platform these right. things that, that that our set designer had built, which were really cool. They had like brick on one side and wood paneling on the other side. And there were four of them. So our cast would bring them out for each scene and shift them into different arrangements to create a new room every time. Right. Um, so uh, our theater company, uh, Theater Unleashed, uh, uh, our producers were like, you know what? We want to keep this because uh, the next show that's coming in is going to use them. So because they're very flexible. So, so there wasn't much set to break down in our case. But obviously, but, like yeah, Hamilton, no. they're traveling with, you know, millions of, yeah. of, of um, trucks and shit. Yeah, right? they break them down and fit them into trucks. Right. Yeah. But for something like yours, where you like where you want to put on another version of the same play in Santa Barbara or whatever. Right. There, I it, you would have in a this new case I don't want to take this show. I want to do a new production. Oh, a new yeah. production. Gotcha. I want a different director. I you know, I'll probably I actually in this case I don't want to have anything to do with it. I kind of want to let somebody else like with a different vision go, right. you know, cuz I feel like this this version of the play was like my version. Mm-hmm. You know, it was me and Michael Shepard, um our director and we have we actually you know, we we got along great, but we have very different impulses um as as artists and so it was super educational to work with him. Um, and, um, you know, make this thing kind of something very different from what I, what I had written, I thought originally, but it was very much like my version. I had a lot of input. Um, and I, now I kind of want to see what somebody else would do with the text. Um, So cause that's what's so cool about a play is that it exists as a text, you know, it's not like, I mean, that's what, that's, what's been so crazy making about this experience, crazy in a good way and crazy in, in not so good ways is that like, you know, as opposed to, to the screenwriting I've been doing for the last dozen years where if nothing gets made, you know, besides like my short films that I've actually gotten feedback on, I never get feedback. It's like, I've made a living being a screenwriter, but none of the stuff has gotten made. You know, none of the movies mm-hmm. have actually made it to the big screen or the TV shows have made it to TV. So it's almost like I've never gotten real feedback. Right. I've never Weird. had like a real reality check of like what my voice is like in conversation with the culture. So this play was so great for that to like realize like, Oh, here's who I'm talking to. And, and here's who I'm trying to, you know, what I'm trying to say and who that 
resonates with like and and also for my friends like my community because it's like there's so many people out there that are part of my community like really close friends that have never read anything right. i've written because you know they were friends because our kids go to the same preschool or and they know that i'm a writer and a director but they've never seen any of my work besides the short films yeah, maybe so weird so yeah. it's so interesting to be like oh right this was this play was kind of like this coming out into my world in a certain way and being like here's who i am as an artist you know, what do you have to say about what I had to say? And it's been super, super interesting. And like I like I said, I just learned so much. That's um, awesome. I can't wait to do it again. The yeah, our, our, listeners, our listeners may not realize like how many people are professional screenwriters in Los Angeles who have never had anything produced. Yeah. And they've make a <laughs> living. Make a like they make living. a good living. Yeah. Right. And even if they did have something produced, it might have had, you know, it, it may have never had their name on it. Right. Or it may have their name on it, but have been rewritten so many times right. that it's nothing like what they originally wrote. Uh, yeah. The, the screenwriting business is a very bizarre one for that reason. Like my, um, that, and that's really why, I, you know, it's funny because that's why I set out to write the play in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I kind of forgot that along the way. Like, I, you know, when I, I started writing, because my brother and I had some downtime where we were seeking financing for our feature. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give myself permission to write this because it'll be just a text. And then it'll, you know, I don't even have to worry about it being a play. I just want to write this so I have something that's done. And sure enough, at the end of this experience, like that's what I'm most happy with is like, ah, I have a text. It's like, it's it's done. Right. And of course, I want to rewrite it a little bit. But after I rewrite it a little bit, then it's done. And then uh, I'll feel like, you know, it's it's just an accomplishment to have something. It's like writing a novel or a poem versus a screenplay. It's just its own thing which is really nice so yeah great. that is cool well i hope someone else puts yeah. it on that would be cool i mean yeah. how, how do other people so if someone's listening right now and they have a small theater in boise and they want yeah. to put it on how would they find it tweet me okay yeah tweet at me i'll send you a copy perfect I'll send a copy and then find me a director. You know, that's really what it's going to come down to is a producer and or a director who's really passionate about the material and gets it and talks to me and, you know, we get along and then I'll figure out a way to license it or give it to you or whatever. And let's well, let's not talk city. about giving it away. Mm -hmm. uh, if <laughs> it's not going to be an expensive play to produce. And I don't want any barriers. Uh, Look, I'm but, just yeah. saying as your agent here, let's, let's <laughs> oh, ease up on the giving it away. <laughs> I don't think licensing fees are that expensive. I believe it was Jason, if so, Jason Isbell's father once told him, as he recounts in the lyrics to the song Outfit, don't give it away. I think that's <laughs> wise. I get all my my life lessons from Jason Isbell, so... Yeah, there's a lot of Jason Isbell references. I think if we go back through Literary Disco, you might mention him every other episode. Yeah. It's pretty intense. I think of him as my father, though he's probably <laughs> 10 years younger than me. <laughs> yeah, it's getting weird. Uh, Should we play some All right, games? so which game do we want to play first? Uh, so so we've got... So I've got my game, Rock, Paper, Scissors. Uh-huh. Uh, Julia, you've got your game, right? What's your game? Mine is Bookshelf Roulette, a classic. Okay. Where okay. we all run to our bookshelves very quickly. Okay. Ryder, what do you books. have? And I have Judging a Book by its Cover, which is I have picked three books and I will read the first paragraph of each of them and you guys get to <laughs> guess what it is or maybe what it's about or whatever. Right. I always what? have and loved that that the title of that is wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of our judging a book by its first paragraph. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Especially yours, Todd. Why don't we go Ryder, Julia, Todd? I think okay. that will be good flow. Okay, I'm ready. Sounds good. I'm ready. Okay. I have to make sure I'm hiding my book from my webcam so you guys don't, don't see the cover. Okay. 
book number one for you guys to judge by its cover. Okay. And I remember last time we did this, I knocked it out of the park with that Ben Lerner, as I recall. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Stop yeah. bragging. Yeah. You guys, I mean, actually, pretty much every time one of you guys guesses the actual book, okay. which is, and I think that might happen today, okay. too. Okay. Um, Winnie right. the Pooh said, <laughs> With a little effort, anything can be shown to connect with anything else. Existence is infinitely cross-referenced. And everything has more than one definition. A cat is a mammal. A narcissist, a companion, a riddle. I've been reading T.S. Eliot again, the nice hardback edition of his poems that Roberta gave me before she left. I'd almost forgotten how heady Eliot is, how much thinking he crowds into four quartets. And this is a quote of T.S. Eliot. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies, for the pattern is new in every moment. Hmm. Is this a random paragraph or the first paragraph? Nope, first paragraph. Wow. I feel like it's a book that I might have read. Hmm. Yeah, I think you might have read this too. I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure. My first. You definitely. You guys definitely know of this book. Since I can't figure out if it's a novel in the first person or a memoir essay, I'm gonna guess right in the middle, which is that book that everyone read. I didn't read it. Uh, my Struggle. That's my guess. Oh. That's my guess. Carl Knopfsgaard or whatever his name yeah. is. Yeah. Like smart. Carl Ulf. See, similarly, Julia, I was mm. thinking it's just pretentious enough to be a memoir. Uh-huh. It's just crafted enough to be a novel. It's a little irritating. It's Jonathan Saffron 4. All right, is that where you guys land? So you both land somewhere between Wait, so, novel don't tell and us what it is. Don't tell us what it is. Don't tell us. Oh, you still yeah. want Yeah, so, we, we need more. This this was a 30-second game. <laughs> yeah, so hold on. So, but then I think, like, everything is illuminated. That one's from the perspective of a child, right? It's not that. And then the, the one where he goes to Russia, that's an adult. And then okay. I stopped reading him after the love letters to Natalie Portman. And now he's all about veganism. Yeah, so and so I, now I he doesn't really write now. You know, but, I've never read a single thing that that guy has written. Well, so you've ruined the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. So, okay, that's a clue. All right, so are we Well, correct? I think if you had gotten it right, I would have told you right I, away. Are we correct that it's like a, a male author and like... Oh, it's for sure a male author. Are, is it no, one's that, no one's that interested in T.S. Eliot that's a woman. Come on. No one cares unless you're a dude and you're like, oh, the wasteland. Are the we thing. Are we right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh. It is a woman. Okay. Don't tell us. Don't tell us. Oh, cool. Well, are you give us a, the woman. first couple of sentences again. <clears throat> blah, 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 With blah, a little blah, effort, anything can be shown to connect <laughs> with anything else. Existence is infinitely cross-referenced. And everything has more than one definition. A cat is a mammal, a narcissist, a companion, a riddle. Oh, it's Margaret Atwood, cat's eye. Nope. <laughs> you just heard cat. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I don't think the point of this game is for you guys to actually get... I mean, that would be amazing, obviously, if we can pull that right. off. Sure. But I think, um, you know, is it a... so I, giving this, like, period... 
Uh, sure, sure. And right. structure, you know, like mm-hmm. fi- fiction, nonfiction, poem, whatever. Right. Like, so given all that. Okay. I'm gonna fiction. Go... Yeah, you go ahead, Todd. Make your guess. Fiction written in the 1980s, Harvard educated, uh, brown hair, cornroom glasses. <laughs> <laughs> That's the author. You so originally thought it was a man. I, sexist. Super <laughs> yeah, I think it's a man because of the like. I don't. I just. I knew all these dudes that would sit around reading T.S. Eliot, and they were always like yeah. those poet dudes you went to college with. You sat in the square and read their poetry. All right. And all right, I never, so Julia, anything to add? I think it's nonfiction. Um, and I think it's. Yeah, I think it's nonfiction. Otherwise, I don't know. All right. You guys are pretty far off on this one. Um, mm. It is The Archivist by Martha Cooley. Oh. oh. Do you guys know this? Yeah, we went to, she uh, taught at Bennington. She was day. one of my yeah. professors at Bennington. And this is a book from 1998. And it's all about, actually, I think, I believe this opening passage is, yeah, it's in the male narrator's uh-huh. Okay. And, uh-huh. yes. And he's at he's at Princeton, or actually, it doesn't even say uh-huh. it's just a name university. Uh-huh. So, so, you're right in the voice to a certain extent, Todd. And, but it and the fiction. characterization of the person. Ivy League. Right. Yeah, but it also goes to show that uh, Martha Cooley ha- it was good at capturing yeah. that voice. Um, and it actually jumps around through, from that, from him to his um his wife's uh memoir or his wife's letters um i think those are the two voices ah. of this. I, I haven't read this book since i was in grad school and she was one of my teachers um but this is a uh this is a, a really really good book that i want to reread um and i actually just picked it randomly for judging a book by its cover um and then i started looking it up so what the book's about is it's um the main character is this guy who um Matthias, he's a librarian and he's the archivist who's in charge of letters that T.S. Eliot wrote to a woman over the course of his entire life. There's like 30, there's 1300 of these letters that nobody has ever read because the woman, they never had an actual relationship. Apparently it was a platonic relationship, but T.S. Eliot, you know, fell in love with her when he was 24, but then they never actually got together, but they wrote letters to each other all the time. And she saved all of his letters and donated them to Princeton. But they've been under seal. So no one's actually read them. Uh, and so they're sitting in Princeton. And uh, and this book is about the the librarian, the guy who's in charge of the letters. And then this woman comes into his life and she wants him to, you know, secretly give her the letter so she can read it. And it becomes, it's a really, really interesting novel. But, um, but it, it also reminded me, I was like, wait, what is happening with those letters? And I looked it up and they're being, re- they're going to be released in January. Um, which, so it's going to be like this explosion of T.S. Eliot, new T.S. Eliot information. And, and no one really knows, like, is it going to be like really racy and interested and, you know, expose more of his anti-Semitism? Oh God, I hope so. Is it just going to be like, <laughs> you know, kind of boring love lettery right. or, you know, friendly letter stuff that doesn't really reveal anything new about T.S. Eliot. But cool. yeah, this, you know, I, I mean, I'm a big T.S. Eliot fan and, uh, but it was uh. funny because I, I picked up the book. <laughs> But I picked up this book and honestly, I was like, wait, which poet is this book about? Like I knew it was, a, you know, it had been like 10 years since I read it. I was like, is it Eliot? Is it who? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah that's Eliot. So uh, I'm not a huge, I'm, I'm obviously not very well versed in Eliot. But I was pretty, I, I was actually pretty close, at least in identifying the character. Yeah, that's um, interesting. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I give myself... I So I basically, I feel like I solved it. Yeah. Well... I think I think it's a good book for like a, you know the the nerdiest literary nerds of our listeners out there because it, it's all about like diving deep into poetry, diving deep into people's personal lives, uh, and then uh, women's mental health issues too play very very prominent. You know, I, I had a, a I had a moment of realization the other day when I was tweeting at my friend uh, Elizabeth Crane, who's been on the show before, that it used to be like you had to wait until your favorite authors were dead to get their letters and find out what they're really like. But now in real time, you can just see me talking to Elizabeth Crane about burritos on Twitter. <laughs> and wow, what a rich world we have. Yeah, well, and boy, what, how revealing it is. <laughs> no, we understand everything about your novels now. Okay, are you guys ready for some bookshelf roulette? I, oh, wait, he's no, got more. Gotta, I've got two more we'll books two more to talk about cover. I thought there was just yeah. one. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. That's why I didn't think we had to kill on for so long. <laughs> I understand. But, okay. All right. <clears throat> this is going to be a tough one. Prelude. Hello, hero. An odd thing about this book is that you, the reader, and I, the author, are the immediate protagonists. The very action of reading makes you the hero of the story I am telling. Maybe you bought or stole a physical copy, paid to read this on your tablet, or pirated a digital copy off a share site. Whatever the prequel, here you are, living precisely the circumstances described in this book. You're an assassin. You gotta be careful, man. You're gonna start saying something that I'm gonna be like, it's your best friend's book. Do you might not, and he's listening you might right now. Have read your brother's book, but <laughs> well, okay. So modern times. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to read the second paragraph too because yeah. it might help. If you paid to read this, thank you. This book is a result of living my life as I do, which I hope provides value to you. Mm. The hope of this book is that someday we'll all have more ways to grow wealth as a side effect of living our lives creatively and intelligently with an eye to doing things of use to others. Oh, okay. damn it. Work that optional it. or it's some financial independence book. Um, Anthony yeah. Scaramucci. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is this is in the fire movement. So financial independence, early retirement. Um, that's a movement. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, it's a whole I thing. Get into that. And uh, yeah, you, let's see. Or like a Mister Money Mustache book. I know all about this. Or this is weird porn. Okay. <laughs> so non, you're saying nonfiction, self helpy. Definitely self help. Geared towards making money fire. and being a success. Uh, that's my guess, but I don't know why Ryder would have that. Because Ryder is a Marxist, but also he has money. <laughs> Can you read the sentence about wealth again? <laughs> I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of a socialist. But... If you paid to read this, thank you. This book is the result of living is a result of living my life as I do, which I hope provides value to you. The hope of this book is that someday we'll all have more ways to grow wealth as a side effect of living our lives creatively and intelligently, with an eye to doing things of use to others. Yeah. Doing things of use. Okay. 
So it's or like maybe it's um, like Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert or something like that. No, this is like um, uh, what's that dude who owned Virgin Branson? Um, Richard Branson. Yeah, like one of the one of these guys that has done good things in the world with his money while also making art, but it also turns out that he's probably involved deeply with the Ukrainians. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's our guess. We. I yeah. I think I'm closer than Todd, but we're in agreement. You guys, you guys are actually pretty close. Um, it's more, it's 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 it is kind of self-helpy, but it's more about um, digital independence oh. than financial independence. This is a book called "Who Owns the Future" by Jaron Lanier. Do you guys no. know him? No, pretty book. He's he's like one of these early Silicon Valley guys, like one of the founders of the internet, hmm. and. He published, he's published a bunch of books. I think he has a new one out too, but this was from 2013 and it is crazy ahead of its time in terms of um, sort of pointing a finger at the big tech companies and saying everything they're doing is God awful and going to be the death of us. Um, you know, in the sense that he basically is one of the first people to say, we should not be giving away any personal information to social media right. because that is being weaponized and that is being, you know, financially used against us. Um, and it's only going to hurt society. So the main ar argument of this book, which is really, really cool. And I, I think has been picked up and discussed in other circles, but I think he was the first one to really advance this, which is that um, the, to restructure the internet, which would then of course restructure our entire economy, right we should all be paid for social media. That every time like I sign up for something like Facebook, I should get micropayments because Facebook gets all my information. So in other words, if Facebook were to, you know, sell my, you know, to, or give right. my information to an advertiser or my algorithms and what I click, every time that they use that information, I should get uh, a quarter of a cent. Mm -hmm. And that that I would actually add up to sharing the wealth of this information, you know, um, economy that we've created with the internet in a way that distributes it much, much more, yeah. uh, egalitarianly and, and better, you know, and I, I, he was, this is in 2013. And like, I think what happened with Cambridge Analytica and of course, what we all know now about these tech companies and we're all sort of freaking out, but it, it feels a little bit like we're, you know, just did, arranging deck chairs on the, did Titanic. you guys watch it's, that Cambridge uh, Analytica, uh, documentary that was on Netflix? No, oh, no, man. Hor horrifying hasn't stopped me from yeah. updating my Facebook three times a day though, which yeah. is a problem I suspect. Well, that's the problem is that like I feel like I can't get rid of Facebook, right. right? It's it's you know I don't really do much with it or Twitter these days, but it does feel like kind of a Rolodex, a way to right. keep in touch with certain people or to just be accessible to the world in a way that I I think is kind of necessary these but days. But you know the that but, point about these micropayments, like I mean, it's really true. So like when I do advertising for the MFA program, we do almost all of our advertising now is on Facebook. I've, I've removed all of our print advertising and it's all on Facebook, and I can. I can get you down to your, your barest trait and get an ad delivered to you 10 times a yep. day if I want to. And it's like, it, it's your data has created this ad space for you. you I, I can see like the, the wisdom of you should get a, a tenth of 1%, but by then the same token, wouldn't it that be, well, if you watch CBS all day mm. and the advertising you get is for catheters all day long, well, should you get a piece of that catheter advertising also because the the people advertising on CBS realize that you're over 16 and haven't peed right. 
Hmm. You know, so there's there's an argument to be made for across all media in the history. I don't think you're giving I don't think you're giving up the same amount of information when you're well. No, clearly not. But 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 Netflix owns your algorithm and your taste, which is kind of terrifying. And they don't have to share it with anybody. That's privately owned by a company that does not tell anybody else in the industry what their algorithms are and who's watching what. And so you know that's why Netflix was able to become the giant pyramid scheme that it is is because it was you know it's been building on knowing that like oh people want the disney stuff you know because the kids you know so they made sure that they had that disney contract for the last couple of years and that's why disney was like a little late in the game getting right. to the streaming service because they were like oh shit we need to take advantage of this because you know and, and nielsen doesn't release any information about netflix shows they're trying but um, you know they they try to hack the audio, like basically shazamming the audio of Netflix shows in order to say to mm. figure out what people are watching. Right. Because Netflix is totally proprietary about their information. Same way with with Facebook. It's like, and it's just it's scary because these are huge companies with a lot of money and a lot of power, and they're determining what we're watching. Right. Um, well, it, anyway, if anyone wants to know, it's it's mostly from one a.m. till three a.m. every cold case show. That's yeah. on. That's what I'm watching. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> and you can always rationalize down. it as research for right. novels, right? That's what's so great. And about there's a never-ending supply of cold case forensic shows on Netflix. Like 4 a.m., you're like, I wonder if anyone's ever died in England. Oh, there's a show. <laughs> <laughs> My targeted marketing at this point across all platforms is so amazing that I have to, like, I have to very actively like do something not to watch what they want me to watch buy what they want me to buy etc it's it's really intense i've been thinking a lot about like what i can do to (laughs) set some parameters for myself so uh i will highly i highly recommend switching your search engine to DuckDuckGo. it's google but they do not keep track of any of your information and any of your searches so everybody, it's just as good as Google. It does all the things that Google searches does. And you can change your browser to use DuckDuckGo as the basis. I highly recommend that because I just hate the idea of piles and piles of information about me and my searches going into Google and being sold for advertisements and being targeted towards me. Um, and then, yeah, get an ad blocker. That's an easy, yeah, you know. Easy. Everybody should have an ad blocker. There's there's a couple of them out there. They're, most of them are free and they actually work. Like you can, you know read the new york times without having a giant video pop up or i also have a guy that stands in front of my house and anytime anyone shows up he's just like not today (laughs) (laughs) cost effective all right final book final book and i uh i'm pretty confident about this one i'm gonna have to remove a sentence that would give it all away said captain kirk walks into that's the title of the chapter Context is everything. Dress me up and see. I'm a carnival barker, an auctioneer, a downtown performance artist, a speaker in tongues, a senator drunk on filibuster. This is where I skip the sentence. My mouth won't quit, though mostly I whisper to sub-vocalize like I'm reading aloud, my Adam's apple bobbing, jaw muscle beating like a miniature heart under my cheek, the noise suppressed, the words escaping silently, mere ghosts of themselves, husks empty of breath and tone. If I were a Dick Tracy villain, I'd have to be mumbles. Mm. Mm. I'm getting a very strong Hunter S. Thompson vibe. Mm-mm. No? No, way too linear. Lucid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe a Philip K. Dick? Okay, so it's someone who's performative, talkative, 
Or it's James Elroy. It might be James Elroy. But I don't know if Ryder reads James Elroy. Hmm. And what sentence would give it all away? Well, the staccato makes me feel like it's James Elroy because he writes in that sort of staccato two-word sentence thing. Um, Philip K. Dick is a bit more expansive. There's a cultural reference to Dick Tracy in there, so you know that this Mm -hmm. person's trying to create a certain vibe. I'm going James Elroy, uh, cold 6,000. I don't know what that is. That's stupid. You're stupid. What? Uh, That's what makes you think I'm stupid? Okay, so Ryder's clue. Yeah, I know, right? That there's something in there that would give it all away. Right. It's something that is well known. It is something that is super clear. Hunter S. Thompson, like if he's like, I'm Gonzo. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Okay, so I think it's fiction. Um, And it's got to be like a well known character. Oh, man. I don't know. It's for sure a man, again, because only a man thinks that they're so important that they can write in two-word sentences. You are so... Can we, like, turn down the weird sexism today? <laughs> I, no, I, I, I'm anti-man in this case. That's still, it's, it's the still, fake, still could be sexism. It's the fake machismo. Like, there's something... There's the pose. Well, you were, you were flat out wrong about Martha Coolidge. Okay, so. I was right about the character. The can, character you write a, uh, can you read the first sentence one more time? Context is everything. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Dress me up and see. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm a carnival barker, uh-huh. an auctioneer, a downtown performance artist, a speaker in tongues, yeah. a senator drunk on filibuster. Yeah. My mouth won't quit, though mostly I whisper or sub-vocalize like I'm reading aloud. My Adam's apple bobbing, jaw Ooh, muscle beating be like a-, a miniature heart under my cheek. The noise suppressed, the words escaping silently, mere ghosts of themselves, husks empty of breath and tone. Was Could Rain a poem. Man a book? It's a poem. I'd have to be mumbled. It's a poem. Oh. It's a poem. <laughs> okay. Wait. Was Rain Man a book or just a movie? <laughs> That's uh, my... This is someone that. who <laughs> mutters the poetry and whispers. Of Rain Man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think Todd's right. I think it's a poem. I think it's a poem. I think it's uh, Lawrence It could be Spelling a poem Getty. that we've read. It's got to be post-1950. Right. You guys ready? Yeah. Not a poem. Damn it. Male author. And Julia, you were pretty oddly close with Rain Man. Yes. And Todd, the James Elroy thing is also good. It's Motherless Brooklyn. Ah! Jonathan Autistic Detective. Right. Yeah. So, uh, no, not, he has Tourette's, Tourette's which is right. a sentence I had to take away. I've got Tourette's is like the fourth sentence sure, of the, sure, the book. Sure. So I took that away, but... Um, yeah, so there's a movie version of yeah, this coming uh, this coming out, and I saw the trailer for it, and I was cool. like, "Whoa! I really want to go back and reread that book because I used to love this book." Um, I wonder how it holds up, but uh, I was also fascinated to see that the the movie changes the time period oh. um, because it actually I think it sets it in the 40s or the 50s, hmm. um, whereas this was contemporary um, in whatever the early aughts when it was released. Right. When did this book come in out? May, 1999, 2001, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but this was like a huge book yeah. back then. And I, you know, I'm, I I was living in New York and I remember it was like the book everybody had to read. 
And it's great. I remember it being so much fun, like a, a real, you yeah, know, an, a, really a mystery, movie. a crime story, but then having this incredible Tourette narrator and he just captures the feeling and the, the rhythm of his thoughts uh, when, you know, while he's dealing with Tourette's and sort of using it to his advantage um, as a detective, which is just such a cool, you know, idea. Um, I'm going to say we got that. <laughs> we we got pretty close to it. Like we got uh, we got the feel. We got the idea of the detective with the James Elroy. I think we were pretty close. Yep. And the poetry yeah. of Rain Man. Until you got you got thrown off by poetry. I probably fe- fell into a po- a slam poetry cadence. That, <laughs> well, that he's an incredible incredible writer. So yeah, yeah, to be mistaken for a poet, what a good thing. <laughs> they should have sent a poet. <laughs> All right, so uh, All we right. played one game All and right. made it almost through an entire episode. All right. Yeah. Should we skip mine? I, or should we just do a quickie? Why don't we just do a quickie do roulette? Quick. All right. Let's throw hey, out Todd. some numbers and then we'll just yes. each pick Todd, a book. give me a number from is. one to four. Four. Okay, Ryder, give me a number from one to eight. Three. And I will say 18. So... Uh, on our bottom, the way we do it is imagine your bookshelf's a clock. On your bottom left, that's where we're going to start. You're going to start, what what number did you say, Ryder? I said three. All right, you're going to start on the bottom left. Count, count three shelves up and 18 books over, and then we'll figure out what we found. Ready, right. set, go. Awesome. <laughs> this week is brought to you by Hingston and Olson, the publisher of the 2019 short story Advent Calendar. Remember Advent calendars? Remember the thrill of opening a new gift every morning? And the surprise of never knowing exactly what was inside? Well, now you can rediscover that joy as an adult, and with a new literary twist, thanks to Hingston and Olson. They're the makers of the short story Advent calendar, a deluxe box set of 25 individually bound short stories that readers open, one by one, on the mornings leading up to Christmas. Each story is sealed, so you won't know what's inside until the morning you open it. When you're done reading, visit shortstoryadventcalendar.com for an exclusive interview with the author of that day's story. These are literary, non-religious short stories for adults, and they come from some of the best writers in North America and beyond. The 2019 edition includes stories from Pulitzer Prize winner Anthony Doerr, Omar Al-Akkad, Lauren Groff, Jack Pendarvis, Casey Plett, and many more. Don't wait until December 1st. Order your copy today from shortstoryadventcalendar.com and enter the promo code LITERARYDISCO at checkout to get 10% off your purchase. I'm back. Welcome back. All right. Here we are. What'd you guys get? What'd you guys get? I got a great one. All right. I got a really good one too, I think. (laughs) I got a good one, but I think I've talked about this author before, so I, I don't know. It's it's a little repetitive for our show, but you know, all not right, everybody's I- listened to all 156 episodes. So. <laughs> what? <laughs> all right, I'll, who wants to go first? I'll go first. I'm go so ahead. excited. Yeah. I actually forgot I had this. Um, I basically landed on the book that made me a reader, which oh, is wow. Matilda by Roald Dahl. Which is oh yeah into my bookshelf. Um, I actually have two copies, so my chances of getting it were good. Um, but if you haven't read Matilda, I don't know what's going on with you. It's the best book. I've actually never read it. I read it a million well, years ago. 
It's, so, uh, it w- is it good for? Could I read it to my five-year-old, almost five-year-old, or is it? Should I wait another like year or two? I, I can't, can't um, remember like how dark Roald Dahl gets at times. Okay, so Roald Dahl is very dark. Um, yeah, he's his thing kind of is that adults are like straight up evil. <laughs> so, um, there is one extremely redeeming in this but this is about a girl who's like abused emotionally and like hated by her parents and then she she loves reading and she's very introverted and she goes to this boarding school and she I mean I didn't think of it this way at the time but it's a book about telekinetic powers right so um, it's really good I think you would love it but you might be like whoa this is like a little intense um, but it's, it's real. I think you'll love it actually. And as a role doll, like it's probably one of the least upsetting, like James and the giant peach, like the aunts are like crushed by the peach. Um, the witches has a very dark, but really amazing ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matilda is, it's just like a pure story of a girl who's like underestimated. And then it's a revenge story is really what it is. So it's really good and it's just the best. And I'm going to carry it around and read it in like two hours for the rest of my afternoon. Sounds <laughs> awesome. Like, my, I- um, the director of my play, uh, who is also an actor, is right now doing Matilda. Like they just put up a production this weekend. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go see it. So I wonder if I can read it before I go see the play. You should read, read it first. You should read yeah. it first because the I, I haven't seen the play, um, although I'd like to. But this is one of those books that like lives inside me in a way that I don't think I would be the same person if I hadn't read it several times as a kid. So I think it would be weird to experience it as like a piece of culture rather than like an intense interior book experience. So Mm. it's the best. It's really the best. Awesome. And I I bet about half of our listeners have read it, if not more. I, I read it when I was very young. Um, and I don't know why, but we had a, a beautiful illustrated copy in our house that I can see on the shelf. Um, so I yeah. think you can read it to Indy at any age. He's always ready to, okay. uh, to be fucked up by telekinesis. Oh, wait, let me, <laughs> let me. Read so this. I should read him Carrie. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Wait, Carrie's, wait a second. Carrie's next. Yeah, this is Carrie for sure. This is actually what I Let me read the first page because this is so wrong. The reader of books. It's a funny thing about mothers and fathers, even when their own child is the most disgusting little blister you can ever imagine. Still thinks that he or she is wonderful. Some parents go further. They become so blinded by adoration that they manage to convince themselves their child has qualities of genius. Well, there's nothing very wrong with all this. It's the way of the world. It is only when parents begin telling us about the brilliance of their own revolting offspring but we start shouting, bring us a basin. We're going to be sick. <laughs> That's the first pitch. Oh, That's great. Oh, yeah. It's Andy really good. It's really Yeah. Uh, all right. What, um, all right. Who's next? I will go. I'll go. Um, oh, okay. Or, or you can go. go. We can flip. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got uh, a book that I remember loving, and now I'm having a hard time remembering many details of. Um, <laughs> it is... I reviewed this book in Los Angeles Times. It's Joshua Ferris's book, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. Um, he also wrote Then We Came to the End. But the interesting thing about this book is it sort of dovetails into what 
Ryder was saying earlier, it's a book about a guy. Um, the book came out in 2014. It's a book about a guy. He's a dentist in New York named Paul, as I recall, who has his identity stolen on the internet. And the new identity on the internet is a much better version of him than he is of himself. And so he mm. goes to track down who it is that's stolen his identity and that's taken his life. And then it dovetails into fringe religions and sort of ersatz Judaism. There's a strange religion called the Ohms, as I recall. <laughs> um, but it's it's all about, it's, it's a book that's a search for identity. I'm a huge Joshua Ferris fan, I should note. Um, I've loved every single one of his books. Um, but it's a book that's a search for identity, but it also presages this era where all of our um, social media identities can be stolen and replicated and cloned 8 million times. I'm sure Ryder can speak to this more than any of us. There's probably 800 Ryder Strongs on Twitter. Um, but this book, you know, takes it to that next level of absurdist comedy because he realizes like, oh, God, this person with my fake life is having a much better existence than I'm having. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. And so it was really cool. And this book is also notable that it was the first American book to be up for the Man Booker Prize. So in 2014, the Man Booker opened itself up to all writers, not just writers in England. And Joshua Ferris's book uh, was a finalist that year for that prize. Um, it, but Ferris is a great social satirist. You know, his first book, Then We Came to the End, satirized office culture, told him the we voice, and it was really cool. Um, he had this other book about a guy who can't stop walking. Um, that was a really good book. Um, he's just great. I just, I've always been um, a big super fan of his. Um, and so this is a good one to remember, though I can't remember all the plot points, but it also has a great cover as I'm showing our friends. Mm, I like it. Yeah. So Joshua Ferris, awesome. To Rise Again in a Decent Hour. Yeah, I've heard his name, but never read any of his stuff. So that's good to know. It's also a great um, book about dentistry. There's this woman, I should note. Have I ever talked about this? There's this woman who, uh, she compiles for the National Dentistry Union or something, all mentions of dentistry and teeth in books. And she puts out an annual newsletter that shows like where people talk about teeth and dentistry in books. And sometimes she'll show up at events and be like, do you have anything about teeth in your book? I don't understand any of this. It's true. <laughs> and I'd be like, like she showed up at this big mystery writers convention and she went up to all the authors and was like, are there any sections in your book that deal with bicuspids? And I was like, Oh my God. Oh uh, my God. Uh, yeah. In fact, there's a bicuspid scene in one of my books. And then she puts out this oh, newsletter. She, she has... would like my play. My play had a whole dentist character. We had, a, we, we have a dentist chair on stage that we had to find. Yeah. So there's uh, this woman, like everyone's got a niche that they're into. To find me. And her thing is that she finds so all the weird. dental references in, in contemporary American fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I landed. I landed on a Tony Hoagland book. Uh, Tony cool. Hoagland is one of my favorite contemporary po poets, and this book, the collection is called "What Narcissism Means to Me," <laughs> which is still one of the best titles. Great title. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, it, there's a poem called that in you know in the collection. Um, he's just one of my favorites. He's super accessible. So if anybody's interested in like. You know, if you haven't read much contemporary poetry because it feels too dense or complicated, like Tony Hoagland is a great way in. He's like, it's so fun to read. It's so straightforward. And yet it will really, really get under your skin and make you think about things. Um, but, you know, like he, uh, he has this poem on the CD I buy for my brother. 
And it's just all about, you know, how he bought a CD for his brother and, and for his birthday. And now he's trying to think about, like, why did he do that? And what does it mean? Right. You know, uh, so it's possible I'm doing my brother no favor by appealing to certain tendencies already in his disposition. But then why should I try to improve him on his birthday when at this stage of our lives, what we are and what we aren't is so very apparent? Um, you know, so it's very narrative and sort of like, uh, here's a passage from one called Suicide Song. And dying, you know, shows a serious ingratitude for sunsets and beehive hairdos <laughs> and the precious green corrugated pickles they place at the end of your plate. Killing yourself is wasteful, like spilling oil at sea or not recycling all the kisses you've been given. And anyway, who has clothes nice enough to be caught dead in? He has like a really, it's like always sort of a sense of humor and then really, really poignant. Um, but you know, it was interesting. I had a, I, I had a book, a book club once. Um, and we, you know, our goal is to try and pick as many different types of books. So I was like, oh, let's do poetry. And I, I, I put forward a Tony Hoagland collection. I can't remember if it was this one or another one, sort of assuming like, this is a good way to do poetry. Cause I'm, you know, like most situations, you know, a group of 10 people, not many of them read poetry or really even liked poetry. So I thought like, well, let's read a Tony Hoagland one. Cause that'll sort of inspire everybody to, you know, enjoy poetry. Cause it's not, it's easy to read and it'll make you think. Uh, and not that many people enjoyed it. Um, it was mostly a book club of women. Um, and I realized like, Oh, Tony Hoagland really does kind of speak to white men. Mm. Uh, and, uh, I've heard this complaint about him before from other people too. And like, I think he's, you know, he's definitely like, in his lane, as far as what he writes about it, I think he's, you know, uh, but, but whatever that aside, he is still a really, really good po poet. And, um, I highly recommend if you haven't checked out his stuff, check him out. I think his it, poem awesome. personal is one of my favorite poems of all time. It's not in this collection. Otherwise I'd read it. But if you want to look up the poem personal by Tony Hogan, I think I might've read it on this show. Actually. You have read yeah, it before, I, like yeah. I think yeah. right when he died, I think. Yeah. Um, and you know, he died, he didn't die. He died. Tony Hoagland died? He died last year. Well, I had no yeah. idea. Bummer. I think, right? Am I wrong about this? Hold on. Let me look. I think he's dead. Yeah, he, he died. He died yeah. last year. And then it sort of brought wow. up this weird thing that he had had with Claudia Rankine about race and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of yeah. when I... Because when I did this book club, that was before all of that, and I was like... It was, it was just interesting to me that the people in the book club that were like, eh... He seems kind of limited in his worldview. Yeah. He seems a little misogynist. They're like, these things came out. And I was like, wow, I totally hadn't seen those before. And this was, you know, 10, 10 years ago or whatever. So then when I remember hearing about that weird race back and forth thing that he had and reading about that, I was like, oh, that kind of fits what happened at my book club with Tony Hoagland, which I was a little bummed about. Oh, I didn't know he was dead. That's yeah. such a bummer. Yeah, he died last Ooh. October. Uh, people die. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Hate it. People die. Yeah, and other essays too. by Ryder Strong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we ready for my game? Yeah, let's do All right. it. Yeah. Closing it out. So my game is called Rock, Paper, Scissors. And um, you guys probably remember the intricacies of it. I take, typically I take a poem from Rupi, uh, <laughs> a poem from a real poet, a a pop song and then something that I make up and then you have to pick which one is which one. But I was like, so it's rock and roll. Paper is the the poetry and the scissors is the mashup of all of these things. 
There's four categories. I think, I think originally this was called like rock, paper, rupee or something like no, that. No, no, no. Okay. Well, so here's the thing. As I was playing this game, I was like, we don't need to make any more fun of rupee. No. Well, I mean, this week. Like, she'll have a new book and then we can read it and make fun of it. But I was remembering the other night about how much uh, Ryder and I didn't realize that the sort of rock god pose was uh, sort of a form of toxic masculinity, like the Jim Morrison rock god pose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I read Jared's book. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? This issue of rock, paper, scissors is going to involve the poetry of Jim Morrison, the poetry of a real poet, a pop song, and then my thing, and we'll have to figure out who's who. Oh, so you did write one, so yes, there's four. there's four. Okay, cool. Yeah. Are we ready? And are you adding mother yeah. and father? and to and equalize death? them all, I will open them and close them each with the word mother. And I will do them in poet voice as much as I possibly can. <clears throat> are we ready? Mm-hmm. Mother, a cafe in Brooklyn, Tuesday, the last. I'm in the pants of the cow god, worrying <laughs> about you. Maybe you're in San Francisco. Maybe you're in Vancouver. A dark bar in Paris, like the one where I found you. Lost. Lost like a puppy. Lost like a kitten. Lost like how I feel now that I cannot find you. Walking the streets, the old streetcar lines vibrate at my feet. History in every step. Here walked time and love and you, mother. Mm. Mm. <laughs> All right, here we go. Next one. Yeah. Sore. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Mother. <laughs> Mother, lament for my cock. Sore and crucified. I seek to know you. Acquiring, <laughs> acquiring soulful wisdom. I think we know where this is going. You can open walls of mystery. Strip show. How to acquire death in the morning show. TV death, which the child absorbs. Death well mystery, which makes me write. Slow train. The death of my cock gives life. Forgive the poor old people who gave us entry. Taught us God in the child's prayer in the night. Guitar player, ancient wise satyr, sing your ode to my cock, caress its lament, stiffen and guide us. Jesus. This is either you doing a great Jim Morrison impression. Mother. Oh, God. All right. You ready for the next one? Yeah. Wise guitar player. (laughs) Mother, what do you mean? I'm sorry, by the way, never coming back down. Can't you see? I could, but wouldn't stay. Wouldn't put it like that. What do you mean? I am sorry, by the way, never coming round. 
but so sweet if things just stayed the same. All the lights couldn't put out the dark running through my heart. Lights up, and they know who you are. Know who you are. Do you know who you are? Shine, step into the light. Shine so bright sometimes. Shine. I'm not ever going back, mother. All right. All right. And the last the last one. They're, they're all about the same length. Lament for my length. Uh, <laughs> mother, I was a bum in San Francisco, but once managed to go to a symphony concert along with the well-dressed people. And the music was good, but something about the audience was not. And something about the orchestra and the conductor was not. Although the building was fine and the acoustics perfect, I preferred to listen to the music alone on my radio. And afterward, I did go back to my room and I turned on the radio. But then there was a pounding on the wall. Shut that goddamned thing off, mother. Mother. Mm. All right. I have thoughts. I think maybe Todd wrote the first one, and the fourth one is an actual poet. Um, yeah, that's. But but we're we're in agreement that that the the cock one is is the Morrison, <laughs> and and then the the shine one. I I you know I've always been baffled by the the use of the word shine in songs. It's like one of the most popular like titles for song. I, it's so weird. Like right. yeah. Anyway, but that clearly is the title of that song, um, or at least the refrain that's that goes throughout. Um, so that was a pop song, that's for sure. But yeah, unless he was really going for the Jim Morrison fake out. I mean, it's it, it might have been like it's no. such a over the top version of the Jim Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think the first one couldn't be Jim Morrison because it could be, but I don't remember him writing about Brooklyn. Like the second I heard Brooklyn, I was like, no, that wasn't a mm. thing in Jim Morrison's time. Mm. That was like, you know, Brooklyn was not a hipster spot until the nineties, late nineties. So it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have figured in his life, you know, whereas Paris and San Francisco did. Um, well, in the so. first one, Paris shows up. I know. Well, like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The, so, yeah, but the reference to Brooklyn in the first no. first Caroline. stanza or whatever was enough to it's throw me like, detailed. ah, that's not Jim Morrison. <laughs> yeah, I think Todd. I think I'm with you that Todd wrote the fourth one. But if if he didn't, it's like a beat poet, like a um, yeah. Okay. And uh, you actually mentioned Lawrence Ferlinghetti earlier. Oh, I did. In this, but, and I would say Ooh. that almost sounds like a Lawrence yeah. Ferlinghetti poem talking about being well-dressed and going to the op or being a bum, but then going to the, you know, well-dressed group. But, yeah. All right. So are you ready? So yeah, let's hear All it. All right. The first one, which I'm entitling fake ass. That's an original <laughs> Todd Goldberg composition. It was, it was nice. A cafe right. in yes. Brooklyn, Tuesday, the last yeah. I'm in the pants of the cow god. Yeah, very good. <laughs> All right, so that's me. That's me. The second <laughs> lament for my cock. <laughs> that's Jim Morrison. Oh, the, and this is obviously a poem that he yeah, wrote, yeah. not a song. No, this, right, is, a, okay. this is a poem of his this, called Lament. It's an actual poem of his. The third one is a pop wow. song called Lights Up by Harry mm -hmm. Styles. 
which as of this morning, uh, this week had been played one million times on Spotify. Wow, good job, Ryder. It's a new song, I guess. <laughs> and then the last one, very close, Ryder Strong, Charles Bukowski. Yes, of course, of course. Wow. I'm a bum. To... He said, so... "Yeah, okay, damn it." <laughs> very close. That's my ode to dudes talking about their dicks. That's good. Bukowski's perfect for that too. Because we, I, I think we mentioned, or somebody mentioned, like, or somebody tweeted at us that Bukowski is just um, is is Rupi Kaur for drunk dudes. Yeah, basically. And I was like, that is so yeah. true. It's the same sort of like everything I write is profound. Right. You know, like just breaking wow. them up and just you know different. Oh yeah. So very good. You guys figured it out. I I, I was struck that you thought that I might be Bukowski. I was very excited about that for a moment. The Brooklyn was a giveaway. God damn it. I yeah. thought you might think Brooklyn would just be some other dumbass poet. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But then I put in Vancouver. That was a mistake. Well, overall, Did you really? well I knew there were a bunch of cities mentioned. <laughs> no. Paris. There's Vancouver. There's Paris. There's San Francisco. Oh, there... Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. We got it. So basically what we're trying to say here, people, is um, Jim Morrison was a shitty Very poet. <laughs> Harry but Styles, no attention not much to of a detail. songwriter. <laughs> Charles Bukowski, come on, man. But Todd Goldberg, top fake ass, top fake ass. <laughs> I'm impressed, none. I guess. None. 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 <laughs> Although I wanted to show you guys, I actually put line breaks in. <laughs> Todd, have you what ever written that? poetry? Like, of actually, course. seriously written? I was 17. Oh, okay. Uh, Do you still have them? No, God, no. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wonder, I would love to find out if you ever put mother into any of your God, poems. no. Fuck no. Really? No. You don't think the word wow. mother ever uh, appears? Maybe. Because maybe this, this whole thing comes from a very personal... <laughs> Place mm. you don't even remember. Wow. You might be on to something, mother. <laughs> I don't think you know. I wrote. I wrote a poem to my mom. When I, I wrote was, a poem to your mom also. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> when I was a teenager, I wrote a poem about my parents. But yeah, I don't know if I ever said the word mother in poetry when I was emotionally scribbling. I wrote the word "wents" through the hair, my hair. I remember writing the word "wents" in a poem, and being like, "I dropped wents in that motherfucker." <laughs> Whence? And then I was like, Wherefore? what does that really mean? Anon! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so God. funny how, like, at that age, you're just, like, into the idea of poetry and sounding poetic. Yes. It's so, like, it doesn't even really make oh, sense. Oh, yes, but, please. But I'm sure I'll if there's any 16-year-old girl who collected my love poems, if she'd like to not put those on the internet, <gasps> that would be great. <laughs> Uh, please bring it on under the age of 21 we are okay t you know what we're gonna offer a hundred dollar reward if anybody has a poem for from todd goldberg oh god and there's plenty my poems are actually out there which is terrifying i put stuff on the internet in the 90s Ooh. um and then of course some of my poems were on television right. that's, even, that's not even right so my my scribblings are very much out there um well so. they should say oh, whence wow. they came whence <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. There's a lot of pretentious words. No. Whatsoever whence writers' poems came. <laughs> oh 
God. All right, let's wrap up the show, Ryder Strong. <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.